0: This is Ted Simon. Uh, I'm very happy to be here on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm at my home in California, in in, uh, Round Valley, which is uh, in Mendocino County.
1: Today we have a real special show for you. It's a tribute to Ted Simon, because it's his birthday. Today, Ted turns 84. Back in 1973, Ted Simon set out on a round-the-world trip on a 500cc Triumph Tiger 100 motorcycle. For four years, he traveled over 64,000 miles, that's over 103,000 kilometers. And he went through 45 countries. He detailed his adventures in a book he called Jupiter's Travels. Well, Jupiter's Travels has been a hot-selling book since the day it was published. 40 years later, it's still in print and still in high demand. If you've been around the adventure motorcycle industry very long, you definitely know who Ted Simon is. Well, today we have Ted Simon on the show, and you're going to hear some things from Ted that you've likely never heard before. So, today this is a tribute to Ted Simon and his birthday, 84 years old. Happy birthday, Ted, from Adventure Rider Radio.
2: This is Nick Sanders.
1: I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa
3: Morris.
0: My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach.
3: I'm Rachel from on a Honda. This is Ed March.
1: This is Glenn Hidstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Nico. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brett Tax.
0: This is Zoe Cannell.
3: This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Rust.
1: Hi, this is Jeremy Crinker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. You're listening
2: to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: Well, I guess I should start today's show off by sort of apologizing to you. We were supposed to do the rest of our suspension episode on this one, but the thing is, it's Ted Simon's birthday, and it sort of became apparent to us after we'd planned that other one. So we're going to only bump it ahead one episode. Don't worry, you're still going to get the rest of the suspension episode coming up next. But today, we're going to talk with Ted Simon. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee, and listen to one of the most iconic voices in adventure motorcycling. Ted Simon. Graham Field is an author and adventurer, and here he tells of his first encounter with Ted Simon.
3: When I did my first hub um, meeting which was uh, in the UK. And Sam Manicom had told me I should do it because I just got my first book out. And I arrived there be- sort of very early in the in the weekend, and he said, I'll put you in the marquee and I'll put you between me and Ted Simon. And for me, Ted Simon was this legendary name. He might as well have said Gandhi or something. It was just huge. I was gonna be next to Ted Simon, this guy who inspired generations. And and I, I sort of knew what he looked like a bit, but not that well. And so any, any old guy who walked past, like, is that Ted Simon? Is that Ted Simon? <laughs> anyway, eventually this uh, quite debonair man turned up and he sat down and I sort of said hi. And I was absolutely starstruck. I just didn't know what I'd be able to say to him. What can you say to Ted Simon that he hasn't heard before? and all I really wanted was a photo next to him because this is going to do my credibility loads of good you know? <laughs> I said to him so Ted because I didn't really know anything about Jupiter's travellers or any of that stuff and I Not, you know, the travelers, not the book. Obviously, I knew Jim was travelers. Travel, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so I I said, What do you think about it when uh, you see somebody else who who, who comes along with a new book? You're like, Oh, God, here's another one. And he said, Oh, no, no, no. He said, "I, I don't think that at all. And that's all he said. <laughs> well, you clearly do think that then. <laughs> but actually, he was brilliant. Once we, I noticed he had some wine, and I thought, oh, that's brilliant. I got wine, so I went to my van and got some wine. that was topping up his glass for him, and that broke the ice a little bit. And then he did posed with. He did. It was absolutely brilliant. He, he held my book. There was him on one side, Sam Manic on the other side, and all three of us are holding my book. And he's going, and he's just playing to the camera. He's going, this is the best thing I've read in my life. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah after that it was brilliant and um so uh, and, and since then i mean he, he stayed at my house last year because we had a had an open day at a, a local uh, bike shop so um and, and now i i volunteered to distribute his bloody coffee table boxes. uh ted simon in camera the big heavy things, and i've got about 500 of those in me house so um, <laughs> so yeah i know him quite well now <laughs> And we had this uh, when we had this uh, open day at this adventure bike shop down the road. And uh, it was uh, it's only a little one. So my mum came down and uh, Ted's told my mum about the age, uh, the same age. He's, he's a little bit older than my mum. And uh, so she came down and says, Nathan Millwood there and Dom Giles and a bunch of other authors are there and, uh, and other sort of achievers who have ridden their bikes. fast, And Ted's, Ted's next to me because we're all under the same marquee. And my mum goes up to me and said, oh, and who are you? <laughs> and he says, "Oh, I'm Ted." And says, "Oh, what have you done?" <laughs> but he's very, he's very, he's, he's so. Because I said, you know, people all. Do, I said, do you ever get tired of people asking the same questions, getting you the same? Not even buying a book, but bringing in some old brown, faded copy of *Jupiter's Travels* and asking to sign it. You know, you don't even need a sale out of it. Mm. But he doesn't. He clearly, he clearly really enjoys it. And um, and obviously, he wouldn't. He doesn't have to do it. I'm sure. And he wouldn't keep doing all these shows and doing it if he didn't. So um, yeah, he's an icon who continues to be sort of available to the people inspired. So yeah, he's. Good lad. (laughs) I just want to say happy birthday, Ted. What can I say that no one else has? Thanks for inspiring us all. And um, keep promoting that in-camera box, because I want some room in my hallway.
1: (laughs) Grant and Susan Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Happy birthday, Ted, from Grant and Susan. And many more. Keep on traveling. We'll see you on the road.
2: Sam Manicom. Well, the first time I came across Ted Simon and um, before I say anything else, happy birthday Ted, Um, absolutely magic, many congratulations. And um, I know I've told you this story, but not a lot of other people know this. The first time I came across your work was when I was working, um, waiting on tables during the day, uh, the evening, DJing the disco at nighttime and selling burgers and ice creams on the beach during the daytime. So three jobs. I was traveling. This was in the island of of Corfu in um, the Greek islands. And um, I was saving up money for my, the next step of my trip and uh, there was a couple of uh, ladies who uh, came and sat at uh, one of my tables in the restaurant every evening and we got to talking and um, after they'd been on holiday for about a week and a half one of them said do you know we've got a friend and his name's Ted Simon and he's written a book and it's about riding a motorcycle for four years around the world we think you'd enjoy it would you like a copy of course I said, well, yeah, that would be great thinking, hmm, I shall probably never hear anything more about this again but um, well, how nice of them to think of it. And lo and behold, they went home and six weeks later a copy of Jupiter's Travels arrived. I was so surprised and I absolutely devoured the book. Um, yeah, I suppose that was planted away in the back of my mind. So cheers Ted, mate, you've done a hell of a lot of good for an awful lot of people in, in your lifetime.
1: Well, it was some time ago that uh, Jupiter's Travelers, the Ted Simon Foundation was set up and Ian Harper was a big part of that. And I just found out that they've added another 12 Jupiter's Travelers to the roster, taking it up to 100 Jupiter's Travelers. And they've just announced it today for Ted Simon's birthday. And here from the Jupiter's Travelers Ted Simon Foundation is Ian Harper.
3: Hi, Ted, Ian here. Uh, thanks to Jim and the magic of electricery, I'm uh, sending you this message from a certain side street off, uh, off the Gray's Inn Road. I wonder if you remember it. Anyway, on behalf of our 100 Jupiters travelers and, uh, and the whole Foundation community, have a very, very happy birthday. Uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, in, uh, in Arizona at Overland Expo. Oh, and by the way, I hope it's not two buck chuck that you're drinking today.
1: And coming up next, Ted Simon himself.
0: I'm at my home in California in in, uh, Round Valley, which is uh, in Mendocino County. People always ask me why I ended up here, because it really is very remote. It's a small hole. It's quite a big hole in a mountain range between the two big highways that run north-south. And uh, it's the real wild west. It's not where John Wayne was down there in the south. When I first arrived here in this valley, the cattle baron's um, mansion was still standing. It had, uh, had white stucco walls, it had a huge ballroom with chandeliers and all kinds of things. Incredible. Um, and he, he had a hatchet man called Why Lucky John who used to tip his uh, tip his hat to, to old ladies and so on and poisoned the settlers wells and ordered mur- murders and, uh, and and the the buckaroos used to come down into the valley from the from the mountains at the weekends and shoot the place up but it was uh, the true wild west here
1: that's quite the neighborhood you've moved into yes yes how long have you been
0: there i actually bought the place in 1980 so it's 35 years I left the UK quite a long time ago. and I mean, I go there all the time, uh, but, but I, I actually left it in 67. I went to France and lived in France for 10 years, more than 10 years, and then came here. What drew you to the States? I was halfway around the world in 1975, and I met some people in Quito in Ecuador, a couple that were on a Norton and they they were on a journey and they decided to get married and they couldn't uh, they 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 were still trying at the time to get the authorities to marry them but so i stayed with them for a for a week while they were trying they they failed in the end they had to come back here and do it but um they said when i came to california i should visit them because they lived on a commune and for a brit in 1975 the idea of going to a commune with free love and all that stuff was very tempting so that's why i came here when, when i came through california and i actually enjoyed all the benefits of commune life for about four months before i left so i i really got to know the place very well it's a beautiful part of the world and uh, and although i actually never really wanted to leave france and i'd quite like to go back to it if i still can um, at the time we had to move. There was a family situation and we had to move and uh, I thought well this would be a nice change, it would be a great contrast
1: and that's why I came. Ironic hearing a world traveler such as yourself saying that um, you know you want to get back to a place uh, and, and if you can. Yes, yes. Well, you know I, I, I bought
0: um, a piece of land here which is something I could never have done in Europe because it's so expensive and the freedom of being able to do what you like was very uh, attractive i like building things i like systems i like sort of agricultural systems and things like that and so i i really planted myself here very very thoroughly so it's a uh, it's actually quite hard to imagine leaving it and yet the truth is that i prefer living in france so it 's it's a, a real dilemma i 've been on the ho- horns of this dilemma for a long time. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like for you growing up well i 'll start with my birth, which is um, which was not in London but in germany and the um, And the reason for that was that even by the time I was born, I think things were a bit strained between my parents um and my mother, who came originally from Germany, wanted to be with her mother. So uh, I was, uh, she went over there when when she was close to being, giving birth. And, um, and I was born there and was three months old when I came back to London. And uh, then we, we lived in a small suburban house in London and my father was a, uh, Somebody who worked at the city, he was a linguist. Um, He was what they used to call a correspondent, which meant that he took charge of correspondence between his company that was a grain importing company. And he wrote in various languages because he came originally from Romania. He was a Romanian Jew, and he left Romania when, uh, when things were beginning to look already quite bad, after the First World War and uh, went to Sudan and then eventually found his way to England. He became incredibly patriotic, a tremendous sort of Englishman, really. He's tried his best anyway. Wore a bowler hat and had a telegraph, the Daily Telegraph, furled under his arm and carried his umbrella and went to catch the 755 to London or whatever it was. Um, but uh, my mother was a Prussian, and a very self-willed person, and I think they had a hard time. And uh, five years later, when I was when I was five, uh, they finally erupted. And uh, again, I was sent to Germany while they did all the horrible business that they had to do in those days to get a divorce. So for three months, I was in Germany in 1936, and and. Uh, as a five-year-old, I, of course, had no political <laughs> notions at all. And uh, and I was happy going around saluting Gestapo officers who I thought were very, very handsome. The SS uniforms, I remember. And I wanted to join the Hitler youth and I because I wanted to wear a, a leather harness and carry a, a, a nice knife and so on. Um, and it all of that's worth worth thinking about because it's really ironic since if, if, I, if I'd been there two or three years later, I would have been shipped off to Auschwitz probably or Belsen, which was closer. Um, but it was very useful to me because I learned German fluently in three months as well as getting a tremendous taste for smoked eel, which my aunt Hannah used to sell in her shop and uh, and then I came back to England and, and then I was locked up, of course, for the rest of the, the war because I couldn't go anywhere. But having that, uh, that window already into the outside world made me very antsy. I was um, tremendously keen on getting out of England as soon as the war was over. Uh, I lived alone with my mother. It was a hard life, especially for her. The first thing I did after the war was, was to get on a bicycle and ride to the Mediterranean because I couldn't believe that water could be blue. I don't know if you've been to England, but the water around England is definitely not blue. And, uh, and the idea of there being blue water somehow fascinated me, uh, not, uh, as well as the fact that, that I was very interested in France and enjoyed the language. And so that was my first journey. My first journey was on a bicycle from London to a place near Marseille called Cassis. And, uh, and of course, you can maybe imagine what France was like immediately after the war. It was uh, really quite bare. And I had to get Russian tickets and it was very hard to, to buy anything of any consequence. And I uh, had to sleep in fields and, and uh, slept in a police cell one night because there was nowhere else to go. Um, so that was my first taste of travel. And I did it alone. And, and when I look back on it, I wonder, well, why, why alone? It never occurred to me to ask anybody to go with me. I, I just seemed, that seemed to be my natural condition. So that was really the introduction to the whole thing. Um, I came back and... Uh, was quite good at school and very fond of science and particularly chemistry and I thought I was going to become a chemist or a chemical engineer and went to the university to do that but after a couple of years I found myself distracted by the fact that there, there were no girls around, it was terribly, <laughs> it, was, it was a terribly boring life <laughs> and uh, and, uh, uh, and I I kind of gave up on it after 2 years and and then because um, because I was deferred from doing national service through being in the university I didn't want to go straight into the into the army or the air force or whatever because of not knowing who I was really I mean I was very much at sea so I I escaped to France with a 10 pound note and a rucksack and um, made my way around Paris for a couple of years Um, and by chance fell into journalism. And it was pure chance because uh, I had a note from somebody who knew me who played the the clarinet for Humphrey Littleton, the jazz band. And he um, had a friend who was the managing editor of of a British newspaper in Paris, the Continental Daily Mail. And I went there and I got a job as a messenger boy and I stood in the corner of this newspaper office watching the the guy I stood behind who was called a copy taster and and his job was to receive all the raw copy from the teletape and throw away what wasn't any use. And I watched him for a few months and then he fell ill and never came back and I just did his job. And that's how I became a journalist. (laughs) And that's Really how I think all journalists should start. Uh, I've always had a a terrible prejudice against um, journalism courses and university degrees and things like that. I think the um, best kind of journalist is the one that's that's, uh, a pure opportunist who um, takes advantage of whatever's going on and and lives outside the establishment. So that's a, a personal view, but I think it's a good one.
1: Was this paper in English? It was in English.
0: Yes, it was the it was the daily Ma- it was the continental version of the Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the way the Herald Tribune there, there was an international Herald Tribune, which was the the uh, the European version of the um, the American newspaper. Uh, the the, the, Ma- the continental Daily Mail, however, didn't survive. It, it died three months after I got the job, and uh, so I I was really left adrift and I struggled on for a, a bit and then I came back and did the air force and, and and then got into proper newspapers in London
1: so when you got back to London I guess you could say at that point you were a journalist I did
0: I pretended I was a journalist until <laughs> I actually I actually turned out to be one <laughs>
1: And often, you know, it's our conviction when we go about things that um, that get things done. You know, you go out and if you don't, if you aren't confident, pretend you're confident, and you become confident.
0: Well, yes, I mean, I think that's I think that's the way to attack attack all all jobs is to is to do it and learn how to do it before they find out you can't do it. I mean that's the that that that's that that's the way to go up the ladder. It seems to me. I mean, if you if you already know how to do it before you before you're doing it, then you probably ought to be doing the next thing up.
1: I believe they they might refer to that as jumping from the pot into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're at this point you're working in London as a journalist now. Yes. And how old are you at this point? Uh, I was. Uh, this was.
0: I started on the Daily Express in 1957, so I would have been um, 26. I worked there for a couple of years, and then I I, I got fired three times. The third time, it took. Uh,
1: <laughs> it took. They could finally keep you away.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, and I went to uh, the Daily Mirror, and then I I became I became uh, a, an executive. A features editor on the daily sketch which nobody remembers now because it's the precursor of the daily Mail there were two papers that belonged to associated newspapers the mail and the and the sketch so so that's where I that's pretty much where I ended on in 1964 i I packed it in I didn't like the way things were going at the time and so I stopped it
1: now, only because I believe it's germane to the story. Um, why'd you get fired? Oh, three
0: just times. For, just
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there, there
0: are various jobs you can do on a newspaper. You can be a sub editor or a reporter, or you can uh, do features and so on. And and if you're not very good at one thing, uh, they're they're inclined to fire you until you show that you can do something at something else. And so, uh, I. I was a sub-editor to start with, and then I became a reporter, and then I did some feature writing, and eventually. Um, the The truth of the matter is that my ideas and my feelings were not very much in tune with Lord Beaverbrook's. I, I was uh, politically opposed to the uh, to the uh, the whole Daily Express attitude to things, so it was not so easy. I had to swallow that problem, of course, all along, because I was never very much um, of a a middle-of-the-road conservative, and um, in a way that was required on the Daily Sketch as well. I think that's partly why, in the end, I became uncomfortable with it. I would have been very happy on The Guardian, but at the time I didn't know how to go and work for The Guardian.
1: You know, there's a point where you give up, but a lot of people give up on things and certainly getting fired is one of those hammer on the head things that that will knock you out of the running. And knowing you at this point, knowing what you've done in your life, rather, um, it's understandable that you did what you did when you're younger. But I think that says something about a personality, someone who just keeps going back and just doesn't take no for an answer.
0: I'd like to take that as a compliment, but the the truth the truth of the matter is that that nobody worth his salt in Fleet Street in those days didn't get fired. Um, it was uh, it was part of the deal i mean you you weren't a proper newspaper man unless you'd got fired at least three times <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was one of the ways of moving on to a better job you know it was it really didn't uh, have any kind of a stigma to it at all. It was well understood that. Employers and and uh, and editors were temperamental and unpredictable people, and you, you could be fired for almost anything. I probably should have been fired long before I was. <laughs> it was a completely different industry then. It was uh, very very different. Yeah, and that that's in a way one of the reasons I stopped. It became, <clears> oh, <throat> uh, advertising became too important uh, as a source of revenue. The, the television was beginning to eat into the. The, the takings and they were losing staff and so on. I mean, nothing like, to the extent that, that, that they are today, today it's pathetic. You know, the, 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 most newspapers have hardly anybody working for them at all. But in those days, it was, it was hard to start losing people.
1: Well, nowadays there's, there's so much available for free on the internet. It's impossible to, to compete with that. And yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think the writing's on the wall. Eventually that sort of journalism will be gone. I suppose so. Um, I suppose
0: so. I, I, I can't bring myself to believe that in the end people are going to become quite as, uh, placid and, um, uh, and uncritical as they appear to be. It's, um, it's really a necessary function to have somebody um, use some kind of an editorial function to s- sort out what's worth having and what's not worth having, what's worth looking at. But certainly the, the, uh, yeah. the muckraking investigative journalist of the past is very sorely missed today. Uh, we really do need more people looking into things. Um, It's one of the reasons that I'm not pleased about people being taught how to become journalists at at universities because they're not accustomed to digging under the stones and into the dirt. It's a a necessary function. Um, Whether that can be carried on by by newspapers, I don't know, but somebody's got to do it.
1: Just stepping out of the storyline for a minute, What do you consider yourself throughout your life? Have you been a journalist, um, an author, traveler? I was a journalist until I went on that
0: journey. Um, And that's when I decided I didn't want to be a journalist. It got me into trouble because obviously I was still considered a journalist. Um, and, And I think the reason I didn't want to be a journalist on that journey was that I felt that journalism inclined people to take a a view of things that wasn't really very human. It wasn't very close. It didn't deal with the reality of things as they were. It it glossed over stuff, made generalizations. um, And at best it was uh, on the one hand this and on the other hand that sort of approach to things. And it didn't allow you to actually get into the situation that you were in. You had to be always on the outside observing. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be part of where I was. And so I didn't like to travel as a journalist. And, uh, and in the course of that journey, which really changed me quite dramatically, um, I think I stopped being is called a journalist although i did pretend to be one for some years afterwards doing jobs freelance jobs for people um and i became a writer i suppose i uh, was always very hesitant to call myself a writer because i hold that to be a very high standard um but eventually i suppose that's what i thought of myself as and and really that's been my that's been my job since
1: since 1980, um, I'm a writer. It's an interesting uh, transition from a journalist, which would, as you described, would be on the outside, sort of looking in, probably doing fast um, reports to a writer where you really became part of the story. You allowed yourself to become part of the story. I remember reading, in I think it was in Jupiter's Travels, where you said um, you lost all your inhibitions. Was that part of shedding the, the journalist from you?
0: Yes, of course, yes. Uh, it was, but the journalism was a description of something that I already was, which was a somebody who felt uh, a need to protect himself from the world, which was very much the attitude that uh, my mother's generation had to the world. Before me, that the world was a um, potentially a dangerous place, and that you had to secure yourself, you had to be careful of people, you had to um, expect the worst from it, and always look for security. And uh, and the journey changed that for me completely. I became much more a part of the world and felt that the world. Was on my side, supposed to being a potential threat.
1: I just want to step back for a moment to before you left, so in your late thirties, before you set out on this four-year journey around the world that um, that you become famous for. What was your life like leading up to it before you decided to go on the trip with a motorcycle?
0: When I when I stopped doing journalism. Um, and that wasn't immediately after I left the newspaper because I embarked quite fortuitously on a magazine which took me out for a few years before that died. But that was really just a sort of an interregnum. I, and, and what I did was I, I made my first experiment at, at throwing, throwing caution to the winds and I got a... Uh, I sold up and got a car and drove away into Europe. I actually went to the bullfights. I had friends who who enjoyed going to, to the, the bullfights in Pamplona where Hemingway used to go. And although he was dead by then, uh, his memory lived on. <laughs> and, and I said, well, all right, I'll go with them and, and see what happens. And I went to Pamplona and I did all the... The silly things that people are supposed to do and ran with the balls one night and one day and uh, and just got away with it only just and and, uh, uh, and from that point on, I just followed whatever came my way and it's the first time I'd ever done that i'd uh, I just uh, whoever came came along with an idea I said, fine, we'll do that so I ended up on a boat on the Mediterranean for, for a while, and then I went on a trip through Eastern Europe with a friend. And, uh, and and at the end of that, I was introduced to a ruin in the south of France, which was unbelievably cheap and very exciting, and I bought it uh, for a £1,000 and, and um, decided to spend my time restoring it. And I lived there for several years. That was really quite a transformative experience because it was the first time that I did really serious physical work uh, with stones and mortar and and uh, lived on wine and cheese and had a marvelous life. And uh, And that was really what led me Eventually, to the point where I thought, well, I've got to see the world somehow or other, and uh, made the choice to go around the world on a motorcycle, which was in itself a very quixotic sort of idea. I mean, everybody's doing it now, but at the time, I certainly had never heard of anybody doing it, and, uh, and, and God knows where the idea came from. I didn't have a bike. I wasn't wasn't a motorcyclist, but it just struck me that that would be a a really interesting and unusual way to to see the world and that it would work very well in all kinds of ways. And and also, since I was a writer, I could write a book about it and the book would be good because I'd be the first person ever to have done it, which, of course, isn't true. But in those days, it was very hard to know, especially if you weren't If you weren't part of the motorcycle community, had nothing to do with people who rode bikes, how would you ever know that several people had already done something like that? Anyway, I was able to convince people in London that uh, I was the first person ever to do it and and that they should give me some money and because I was a writer and I knew people, it was easy for me to get um, support. So that's how it all began.
1: And that's another case of where ignorance really pays off. <laughs> because perhaps if you had had the internet back then, if you had had a way or someone to tell you, oh, Ted, you know, people have done this before, and, you know, there's a book out on it, you may never have done it.
0: You're quite right. It's possible. Yeah, I might not have done it. Yeah. Uh, and, and in a way, that's a very interesting uh, introduction to a to a general feeling that I have, you know, which is that we really have much too much information these days, and that it's um, quite depressing. Uh, There are many, many ways in which it's depressing. Uh, It's depressing because we're forever confronted by all the terrible things that people are doing to each other. Um, And we're also engulfed by a huge uh, panorama of problems that seem pretty much insoluble. And i I don't think anybody would contradict that. You know, we are literally afloat in a in a in a sea of trouble, and uh, it's very hard to see how how can one be um, a, a, a joyful, optimistic person in these times. Of course, young people are by nature joyful and optimistic, so there's always that. But nonetheless, it's a very, very difficult thing to see how how can one aim to do anything extraordinary in a world where there is so much information about so many people who have done so many extraordinary things. It's a very difficult uh, question to answer that.
1: Was there a catalyst, like a book or experience, that gave you the idea to ride the motorcycle around the world? Was there, was there some sort of thing that, that started that going? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I can't. I've never been able to answer that. I have no
0: heroes. I've got no, no models. I have no 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 idea at all. I can, it, maybe I've repressed it. I, I doubt it though. I can't think. I can't think of any any anything at all. I simply was sitting in a room one afternoon and I. I was actually watching a television program, uh, a BBC documentary. This was in 1973. You may remember, or no, you won't remember. Um, In 1973, uh, the people in the West had really almost got past the war and austerity and all those things, and we were beginning to feel pretty affluent. And at that point, we began to worry about the poor people of the world, poverty, uh, we started to pay attention to um, famines in Ethiopia and so on. And, uh, and there was a BBC documentary about um, poverty. And there was uh, an episode I was watching from some islands in the South Pacific where people were supposed to be in dreadful poverty. And what I saw on the screen were pictures of very strong looking brown skinned men coming out of the out of the sea carrying huge amounts of fish and behind them were forests laden with fruit and 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 none of them looked poor and none of them looked miserable and I thought there's something wrong with this picture and uh, it just suddenly reignited a a feeling that I'd obviously had uh, for for quite some time that i simply couldn't go on living in a world that I hadn't visited, um, that I really needed to see it for myself. And because I'd been living in relative poverty myself in this ruin, I mean, I wasn't earning much money. I was spending most of my time building for no reason, for no profit whatsoever and uh, just did enough work to buy the, the cement and the, the mortar and the, and the uh, uh, few things that I needed to do the job. Um, and was extremely happy, Uh, I realized that being poor didn't mean automatically that you'd be miserable. Um, And I thought, I've got to find out about this. And it was literally that afternoon as I was thinking, well, what can I do? I, I really need to go out into the world. How can I do it? And I thought, well, the best thing would be. To get somebody to commission me to do it um, uh, and write a book and what would that book be about and how would I do the journey and uh, I thought of all the various ways one could make a journey like that and it suddenly struck me that doing it on a motorcycle might be an extremely good idea, a good way to do it and also um, possibly a very a pioneering way that I'd never heard of anybody doing anything like that. That on a motorcycle. I never heard of anybody going anywhere on a on a motorcycle. Actually, Um, and that's when I decided to do it right then, then and there. And it took me six months to get it going, but that was all right. It was nothing ever happened along the way to take my mind off it. I thought it would be very dangerous. I I thought there would be a good chance that I'd never survive it, but uh, I've never courted danger. On the contrary, I always go overboard to avoid it, if I can. But I've never let it get in the way of something
1: that I really wanted to do. I like the way you say you needed to explore the world when you saw that. And it sounds like you're slightly compulsive. Some people would say adventurous, which is what I think I would lean more towards. Have you always been that way, and do you continue to be that way?
0: I think so, yes, yes. I'm worried that my age might stop me at some point from, from, from that. But, but up to now, I think so. Yes. You're only 84, Ted. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exactly twice the age I was when I was sitting in that room, making that, uh, making that decision. I was 42 then.
1: When you started out on this, you were not a biker, and you were starting out on a journey that you would ultimately become known the world over for, writing the book Jupiter's Travels. You were a traveler that rode a bike at that point, And if circumstances had changed, you somehow lost your bike along the way. Would the journey have continued for you?
0: Oh, I'm sure it would, be, yes. One way or another,
1: Yes. So at what point did it change from a, a traveler that rode a motorcycle to a motorcyclist that travels? Or did that ever happen? I don't think it ever happened.
0: I think I was always um, a traveler on a motorcycle. Uh, not that I didn't appreciate the motorcycle. I appreciated it enormously. Actually, I've become to appreciate it more and more ever since. Uh, but I I certainly did appreciate it. I, I was I think I could say I was quite proud of my ability to use it, although I was never actually a very good motorcyclist, because I'd never given myself the opportunity to be. Um, I mean, particularly on dirt and in sand and so on. I'd, uh, I know now a lot of things that I should have done that I never did, because it was really too dangerous for me to start learning at that time. Um, when I was going across the desert, I've actually been thinking about it a bit just during these last days because I'm making a little film about it. Um, when I was crossing the desert, I I was going over it like a donkey uh, at two, you know like tw- 20 miles an hour, um, plodding along, desperately trying not to fall over, and I know very well that what I should have been doing was I've been going much faster. But, I, but, but I, I would have had to have had a lot of training to do it properly so that I wasn't going to fall off. And I couldn't afford to have a major accident because it would have stopped me in my tracks. You know? so, so all the way around, I was really being a very conservative uh, biker. And, uh, um, and there were a lot of things that I, I didn't know because I'd never had the chance really to experiment. But... the. the the motorcycle on the whole was the right bike and it took me round in, just as it should have done. I, I never had a, a, a really major accident, and, um, unlike the second trip when I did. And, and so um, I was really very attached to the motorcycle. I mean, we, we were a unit. We very much were a unit. But I, th- I never thought of myself really as being a biker. Um, and I never have done actually, I think, uh, I think of the the motorcycle as a very faithful, um, tool implement really for traveling.
1: Was there a a point in the, in the trip when you first started out and probably fairly early on, I'm imagining, um, where you sort of switched over from the bike being just the transportation to actually having that love for it? I wish I could say so, but I don't think so. I, I,
0: I don't know how, I don't want to make it seem as though I didn't, um, I didn't res- respect the machine. I did very much so. Much more, I would say, than the manufacturers did. I mean, <laughs> one, one of the, um, one of the ironies is that when I came back from the trip, I learned that the people who'd been in the factory and, uh, and gave me the bike had been much more worried that the motorcycle wouldn't survive, much more than I, that I wouldn't, whereas I'd always, thought that <laughs> I'd always thought that it would be that I was the weak link. Uh, um, and, uh, and really they'd fallen into the habit of, I think, accepting a judgment which came mainly from the states, that the motorcycle, that the Triumph wouldn't really ever do more than a ten or twenty thousand miles before it was a piece of crap, and a lot of that came out of the fact that uh, that they hadn't, ha- they, they'd never taken the sort of Japanese point of view, I suppose, to the motorcycle. It had always been a motorcycle that was used by uh, working people in England mainly to go to work. It was as an alternative to a car, which they hadn't been able to afford. Uh, And they maintained it with great care uh, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to go to work. So it became something that they'd taken for granted that people who had motorcycles would spend a lot of time fussing with them, making sure that they were okay, oiling the chains, adjusting the... the the gaps and so on and so forth. And um, when the bike came to America, where people all had cars, the motorcycle was a toy. And and Americans just uh, went out and they hauled ass and rode like hell um, and didn't pay much attention to the bike. And after 10,000 miles, everything fell apart. when I turned up after 10 years on the road, uh, I, I discovered that uh, they bought into this and they hadn't realized that, that if they'd paid attention to some of the things that that did go wrong and that people automatically in England took care of, uh, the bike would have been a much more reliable and solid machine. Uh, uh, and the perfect example of that was was what happened to me, but they didn't learn from it. The air filter was useless, and my only problem, my really only big problem on the whole journey, was that the air filter allowed all sorts of grit to get in, and I went through barrels and pistons like nobody's business. And yet there were already K&N oil filters around, which which I knew nothing about, and um, they would presumably have avoided all that. It was the grit getting into the into the. The cylinders that was causing all the trouble. Um, so uh, that's an example of, you know, it's a shame. I think the, the the bike would have survived much better, but I suppose it was an example of the kind of complacency that was fairly deep-rooted in British industry at that
1: time. But I think even you pointed out very blatantly at the, at the start of Jupiter's travels, that breakdowns were really the segue into making friends and becoming well really getting out of the trip what you wanted
0: Oh, I'm not saying that the journey would have been better if the bike had worked without flawlessly <laughs> on the contrary, no, you're quite right the, the, the breakdowns were um, were instrumental, I mean, in, in getting me in touch with just about all kinds of people. I I benefited from them enormously. Every breakdown and every accident I've ever had has always, I've always been very good. They've always led to all sorts of unexpected and uh, very fruitful things. Uh, This is one of the wonderful things about being a writer is that the worse it gets, the better it gets,
1: you know. (laughs) <laughs> well it's a it's a storyteller thing, isn't it, too? I mean, if someone goes on a on a trip and they have a great time at sunny weather, okay, well, it's an interesting little, you know, half a sentence sort of they get out about it. But if they've had adversity, oh my, that what a story yeah. that makes.
0: Well, that's right. Yes. Unfortunately, I think too many people now are writing blogs about the, 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 the unfortunate things that happen to them and and don't pay enough attention to what's going on around them <laughs> because they they're always talking about uh, how the how their um, campfires went
1: out at the wrong time well, or and, whatever and that's what's uh, something I want to talk to you about as well is because i mean there is the big phenomenon everyone out there running around with blogs and and it's it's a it's a result of our technology nowadays it makes it accessible before you couldn't go and and make a book or or make a movie or do those sorts of things and nowadays everyone has that accessible to them so so they're doing it a lot more and i think the idea of the motorcycle adventure nowadays is, and maybe always, any sort of adventure is always about adversity. People want to know about the, the trials and tribulations that you experience on the adventure and how hard you had to work to uh, to get through that. Do you think that, that nowadays, though, that is just becoming um, an explosion of, of, of really of noise, of fluff?
0: Well, at the risk of sounding autocratic, (laughs) um, uh, I think, uh, um, let me think how to put this. Um, It's a good question. Um, uh, What I want to say is that, of course, people should Enjoy what they're doing and and uh, and enjoy telling other people about it and and everything that's happened to them. But for the most part, what what they're able to do is to is to tell people who already know them, um, because those people are obviously going to be very interested in what the in what happened to Aunt Susie or or young Willie or whatever, um, and. And that's very much what is happening now, except that it's happening on the scale of social media, which means that everybody is behaving as though they're personally connected to all the other four thousand friends that they have on social media, and they're telling each other these stories. But there's very little um, there's very little depth to them. It's all uh, accounts of of We went here, we did that, this happened, and so on. And so it's, uh, unfortunately, that there's not very much meaning to be extracted from it. And I think uh, probably the only reason that my book has survived 40 years in print is because of the amount of trouble that I took to attach meaning to the things that happened to me and that's pretty much what you'll find in any decent book or any decent account and that actually is very hard work and requires quite a lot of um, time and, and and energy to do properly and so uh, and so although there's an enormous amount of anecdotal stuff about people travelling and doing things um, there's not very much that's of great value to people who don't know the person's concerned. Um, so that there are very few good books. There's lots of really rather superficial stuff.
1: What do you think of the thought that, um, that travel perhaps should be for yourself first and reporting be secondary or, or almost an afterthought? Um,
0: that wouldn't have been my case. Although Although I, I made the journey because I desperately wanted to know what was going on in the world, it wouldn't have meant anything very much to me unless I'd been able to communicate it, because that is very much my nature, is to explain things first to myself and then to anybody else who wants to listen. So in my case, um, it, the journey would not have been a success unless I'd been able to finish up with something like Jupiter's travels. Uh, But there are others I know. I'm thinking of one man in particular who's done much more traveling than I have, uh, for whom that probably would be true, that it's for himself. And And yet I know that he takes a lot of satisfaction in what he's able to do for people um while he travels so maybe his communication is of a different kind communicates through good deeds and concern and, and um, feeling so um so it, to some extent you're right yeah
1: when you went on your trip you you I don't think you had a political agenda what message were you looking to find and then uh, extol to others uh, or what what was your plan for a story to begin with I didn't have one. No, I didn't have one. I, I, uh,
0: I think that that's part of what I mean about not wanting to be a journalist. Journalists very often go into stories knowing what they're going to write before they come out. Uh, I, I didn't have an agenda. Uh, my mother was a communist and had a very strong uh, view of the world, a very, very particular view of the world and uh, i was colored by that for a while and uh and after i realized that that wasn't really going to answer the the most serious problems that that i had and that the world had um i was very much at at sea i didn't have a particular view of uh, of the world or how i should live how i should behave in it or what would be a good thing for the world, or you know, anything like that? So I didn't really have an agenda. I just hoped that um, I was curious. My curiosity was very central, and I uh, just wanted to find out. I wanted to find out, and and I didn't realize as I was that that I didn't realize that the the journey would affect me. I wasn't expecting it to. And it was only on my way through that I realized that the whole thing, in the end, was turning out to be uh, a journey into my own interior as much as
1: into the world. In Jupiter's travels, the message that you came out with, was it that people are good generally, that they all want sort of the same things and and people are generally just uh, the same no matter where you go in the world? That's part
0: of it, yes um
1: a, a part of it is
0: that i you know people on the whole given a chance will rise to the occasion um but the other thing and uh, what i really meant was that the world is not as full of dangers as we're all led to expect mm. particularly by insurance companies you know <laughs> um we we're, we're all led to believe that uh that that there are lots of risks involved in living. The house might catch fire, you know, we might fall prey to a dreadful disease. Uh, um, Somebody will attack us, people will break in, all sorts of things. Uh, And and there's special emphasis, uh, since I mentioned insurance companies, um, there's a special emphasis on the kind of risks that you can insure yourself against. Um, people don't spend a lot of time thinking about the risks that 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 you can't insure yourself against so there's a there's a big commercial incentive to convince people that that they're in danger of some sort and uh, and what i what i came out of this journey with particularly was that um, that 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 would be a very a very rare and unusual circumstance, to, to be hit by something as, as absurd as falling aeroplane parts or whatever. And that really, on the whole, one should expect to survive and prosper in this world. Uh, and that it's a question of attitude, being sensible, intelligent, um, learning from mistakes, and, uh, and, and putting your faith in, in nature and in the good nature of people.
1: Do you think it's possible, and, and because of what we discussed here already about technology and about the way the world is changing for information, do you think it's possible for someone to go and have a similar experience to what you had, or do you think it's, um, it's an era that's just gone, never to be had again?
0: I've no doubt that you could have the sa- uh, uh, you couldn't have the same experience. It would be impossible to reproduce my journey. I I couldn't do it myself. I tried thirty years later, and I couldn't do it. Um, not that I expected to. But anybody can go out into the world and and have an adventure, uh, and it would be just as meaningful as anything that I did. In fact, the truth be told, you could do it just on your way to the post office. <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it's a question of how open your mind is to what is around you and how, uh, and how free you are of, the, of your preconceptions of things. Um, everything around us is either mundane or miraculous, depending on how you look at it. And that's true of the world. And what 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 the great advantage of a of a journey is is that it helps you to liberate yourself from uh, from these sort of uh, laziness, from mental laziness and preconceptions, and and uh, and and your own bad habits. It's a necessary shock to the system to free free yourself to be able to to behave naturally which opens up all sorts of perspectives on life and people.
1: And Ted, this brings me to a question that I've asked many people on this show, many world travelers. How do you define adventure and is adversity and time required for it?
0: Yeah, well, it's a question I've asked myself many times. Well, the essence of an adventure is, is that you don't know what's going to happen next. And that could be applied to so many different things. And as I said, you know, you could have an adventure going to the post office if you can open your mind sufficiently to the point where you realize that, that anything could happen on the way. But clearly, most people need to be somewhere unfamiliar for that to be the case. And most people need to be to have their consciousness raised, uh, their awareness raised by doing something which they perceive as being difficult or dangerous. This is the essence, as I see it, of of adventure, is that it enhances your perception of the world and enables you to engage in things in a way that you would never otherwise have have done. By raising your, your senses, it... Enables you to connect with others on a on a different level too, so that every interaction that you have with people along the way um, is much more intense and much more uh, alive than it than it would otherwise be. And they perceive this in you, and they rise to the occasion. As I said before, people will rise to the occasion, and they'll behave. Better than they normally would in their ordinary lives, so that you get much more from it. and that all of this contributes to your sense of being in some kind of uh, uh, almost a, a, a magic sphere of being able to see the world in a, in a brighter uh, and, and more precise way than you you can normally. In your ordinary life, so so that to me is the essence of adventure. It may well involve all sorts of risky things. It may involve uh, re- remarkable events and so on. But the essence of adventure is is raising yourself your own uh, level of comprehension um, of raising your own level of comprehension, so so that you can see things more clearly than you could before.
1: And is that what it is about travel that, um, that makes it so incredible to make it th- this experience that you're sort of pushing yourself, you're, you're out of your element?
0: Of course, yes, that's what helps. That's what makes it, makes it so much easier if you, if you move into unfamiliar terrain because you have, you have to be uh, uh, on your best game, as it were to deal with it. You can't just fall back on familiar habits
1: and attitudes. That's really living, isn't it? You know, when you're, when you're sort of, you're out of your comfort zone, when you're maybe slightly in danger in some way. Well, of course, yes. That's, that's how we look at it. We think of that as dangerous,
0: perilous, risky. Um, it isn't really at all. It just seems like that. I don't know, you were, you were probably never in, in the military. I, mean, I, I was unfortunately forced into it for a couple of years. And one of the things that, that they do to you is put you into situations that, that you think of as being challenging and risky. Of course, they know that they're not because they can't afford to lose people. <laughs> right, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but they they know that 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 by by challenging you, by shouting at you, by forcing you to to, uh, to to submit to things that you would normally not submit to, and then have to deal with that. That that is that is what makes your blood run faster, <laughs> and, uh, and it. Uh, and after a while, you benefit from it. Um, it it's, um, so the, although risk, although apparent danger is, seems to be a necessary element for adventure, it's not, it's not really the danger itself. It's what it does to you that makes the whole thing seem adventurous. And when you think about it, you know, we could all be permanently living a, an adventure. And it's a tremendous challenge to think in the, in those terms, uh, and it, it makes the life that most people lead seem really rather poor and pathetic <laughs> compared with the way things could be. But unfortunately, we might all end up being martyrs if we push this too far. I, mean, I don't really, uh, I don't really recommend that we should all become saints.
1: Ted at eighty four. You've experienced a lot and nothing replaces experience in life. And it has to be, of course, you have to live a life where you're doing things and you're pushing yourself and uh, like what we're saying, out of your comfort zone. So now at 84, looking back, what would you be able to tell someone who, who maybe hasn't experienced even part of what you have in life? What would you tell them?
0: Very much what I was just saying that that the the essential thing is to push yourself into into new experiences in in into a um, into reali- realization of your own potential that it's uh, never a good idea to to settle into a routine and that uh, there is so much more that you you could Experience and benefit from, if you keep alive this sense of adventure.
1: What if you try and fail?
0: Well, everybody fails. There's, there's, failure means nothing. Uh, 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 it, there's only one failure, and that comes at the end of your life when you die. <laughs> I think that's uh, <laughs> that, that's that's failure. Yeah
1: ted what do you think of modern motorcycles modern equipment for that matter clothing etc for adventure travel and how it affects the experience
0: well for one thing modern motorcycles also cost money and and one of the temptations that people have when they go on journeys is to buy the most expensive machinery and the most expensive accessories um and think that that's going to somehow or other improve their experience, which is of course completely wrong. Um, the best thing to do is to spend 50 pounds on a on a broken down machine, <laughs> try and make it work, <laughs> and strap all the, all the stuff that you have on the back wrapped up in a in a ground sheet or something. But but I I, I go from one extreme to another here. But but you know, generally speaking, um, having having a a beautiful functioning machine that never breaks down and a suit that, that, uh, that's good in all weathers and, and, and never lets in a drop of rain and uh, so on and so forth um, will not enhance your experience at all. So it's, it's doubly difficult, I think, if you have all that kind of equipment to, to have the sort of uh, journey that I, I could imagine wanting to have but i i i don't know you know this is again to do with the commercial pressure that that is on people all the time thinking that money somehow or other spending money is the necessary uh, ingredient in 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 a good adventure it isn't the best thing to do is to spend as little as possible use this, use the uh, the least um, uh, ex- expensive equipment that you can find, and and just go off. But you know, um, people have to find these things out for themselves. I suppose uh, the, the a very a very simple um, recommendation would be to uh, by all means take a GPS with you if you have to, but don't let it stop you from asking for directions for stopping finding out about things around you. It's always a very important thing to stop as often as you can, to uh, stop at tea houses, to stop at cafes, to, 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 get, to become involved with the people around you. Um, this is one of the reasons why I find these, uh, these, these expensive motorcycle suits um, so off-putting um i find it so hard to imagine having a a really easy conversation with somebody who's standing in an in, an enormously uh, intricate bmw costume with with boots and uh and and a helmet on even though it's raised in that peculiarly threatening way that they are um, and and have an easy conversation. Maybe I'm wrong. I probably come out of a different time. Maybe those things uh, are automatic. But anyway, the main the main thing is to interact with your environment, um, and uh, and follow up on any invitations that are given to you. That's the other thing. People will ask you to come in, to do things, to stay, to join them in some activity, to become involved and that would be my advice. That's the antidote to, to the to the uh, fail to to the efficiency of the machine. Those things used to happen to me whether I wanted them or not because the the machine would break down or I'd run out of gas. Running out of gas is a very good scheme, by the way. <laughs> That's, that 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 <laughs> that always leads to a good consequence. So. Um, so, so allow, allow for um, interruptions along the way. The, those are the things that, that make the journey worthwhile.
1: And to go along with that too, is, isn't it to do with time as well? I mean, when we're trying to do these adventures on a, on a short uh, time slot that we have, that sort of dictates how you're going to travel.
0: I can't imagine how people do that. I, I mean, if there's one good reason why I think America needs a complete overhaul, it's the fact that people's holidays are so short that they can't really go anywhere much. It probably contributes a great deal to uh, the general ignorance of, of people in in the States, of other parts of the world. To go, to go knowing that you've got to be back in the office on Monday week is just... Uh, um, a terrible restriction i think it requires an enormous amount of 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 discipline and will to to enjoy to enjoy it as though it was an open-ended event there is there is to my mind nothing better than being able to go off knowing that you don't have to be back at any particular time it makes an enormous difference to the way in which you behave react to people
1: On your trip that you you did where you went back and you retraced your route from the original trip from 1973 and you went through those places and you looked for your old friends, what was that like? And would you do it again knowing how it turned out? And what I'm getting to here, Ted, is about revisiting places you've been to. If I'd gone on that
0: journey expecting anything other than what happened, it would have been a terrible disappointment. But of course, I knew that I, the world would not be the same. I knew that uh, it was. It would be overcrowded. I, I knew that I would find it difficult to experience the same things again. So, so I wasn't disappointed. But at the same time, I would not advise anybody to go back over the same trip again in the hope of experiencing the same things that had happened to them the first time. Um, I was resigned to, to the way it happened. And when I was able to find the same people again, I was overjoyed. And in fact, those were great moments. Uh, and we did have some some great feeling between us. But as, as to... Um, having the same experiences again that's virtually impossible and i wasn't expecting it and i wouldn't advise anybody to try to try to do it for that reason a lot of people have read jupiter's travels and there have been editions with some pictures in them that were not very good and uh, people have had to create images of what happened on the journey in their own minds, and I'm very glad they did, and apparently they were able to do that very successfully. But I did, a few years ago now, um, manage to resurrect the pictures that I took along the way and make them printable, and and there is now, and this is a very recent thing, there is now a book out which um, retells the story of that journey in a fresh way, with all the pictures from the journey and the people who have seen the book have been very complimentary about it it wasn't designed by me so i can say that it was a very beautiful book um and if um, anybody listening to me here has read jupiter's travels and would like to see it all again from a slightly different perspective i would recommend that book it's a it's a very beautiful book and. Uh, and it's called Jupiter's Travels in Cameras. So it's easy to remember, um, and it, I think I think the book, the book. I'm very proud of the book. It's an extraordinary thing to have a book that stayed in print as long as it has. Uh, it's it's never nobody's ever satisfactorily explained why. It, 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 there's a there was a piece in the British Bike Magazine just very recently, in. In which uh, Duncan James tries to explain to himself, as well as to his readers, why, why me, why this book, why Ted Simon, and doesn't really succeed in doing it, but but sort of uh, sort of comes to the conclusion: well, that that obviously it's exceptional, but why is it exceptional? I, I you know it's a very hard. I I don't think people give. Um, Enough credit to the quality of the writing because it's so easy to read. I think it's perhaps that that uh, that it's um, it it's so easy to read that people don't realize the amount of effort that went into into making it work.
1: Well, if you don't have Jupiter's Travels already, you can go to jupatilia um, dot com and buy that book. But also grab Jupiter's Travels in Camera and uh, both of those are available from your website. Those links, of course, will be on our show notes. Ted, it's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you, and I really appreciate you coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and sharing your story with us.
0: Well, I'm very glad of the opportunity, and uh, and I I wish I could have spoken for another hour, but my voice is cracking up. So um, thank you very much for listening, and I'm glad you enjoyed it.
1: And that was the legendary Ted Simon. Ted is 84 years old today. You can mark this on your calendar. So next year you'll know to celebrate it when he reaches 85, and hopefully. Ted's going to be with us for a lot longer. Make sure you get down to one of the shows that he goes to. He goes to shows and does book signings and and sells his books um, here and there. So you might want to check his website, which is jupitalia.com. And we'll put that link in the show notes, of course. And of course, there's the Ted Simon Foundation. But if you search for Ted Simon on the internet, you're going to find lots on him there. Definitely go by, if you haven't read Jupiter's Travels, you're missing out. You've got to get out there right now. Go to Ted Simon's website itself and order the book right from his website. And as he said, you really should check out Jupiter's Travels in camera. I know I'm going to now uh, that I've talked to Ted about it, because if you read Jupiter's Travels, it'd be really great to see those photographs that go along with it, especially because these are photographs that Ted took when he was originally on his trip. And I think there's something really cool about that. It was a real pleasure to have Ted Simon on here. Ted is really the the pinnacle, I think, in my mind, of adventure motorcycling. And Ted, I hope you have a fantastic birthday with many more to come. Cheers from Adventure Rider Radio and me, Jim Martin. Now, before we finish up, I want to remind you of a special opportunity we have through Audible. And you know what Audible is. Audible is listening to books on tape, they called it before. But now it's just books on MP3. You listen to it on your iPad, your phone, or, or whatever. You can take it in your vehicle and listen to it. Or listen to it right off your computer if you want. And you can get great books on there. I mean, there's all kinds of motorcycle books. There's all kinds of adventure books. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of books. The special deal, if you... The special deal, if you go through the show here, and it gets us credit for the show that you've actually went through it, but it also gets you a free book, the free book you keep, even if you decide to cancel. So when you sign up, you've got to put in your credit card information. I know that sort of freaks some people out, but you don't have to worry about it because they actually don't bill it. I've done it myself. They don't bill it until the end of the month. So you just set it on your calendar. If you don't want to keep it, then you can cancel it. I, I sort of think you will want to once you sign up, but but sign up for it. And it's the, the URL that you go to is Audible audibletrial.com. Dot com forward slash ARR and of course the ARR is for Adventure Rider Radio so go there check out the books really you will not go wrong it's only for new accounts so you have to set up a brand new account one that you haven't used before um, but there's so many books and it's just an opportunity to get a free one if nothing else but more importantly I think you're going to find that there's just a, a wealth of reading there and it's perfect I find it's great for when I'm doing anything you can be driving or, or riding your bicycle or exercising or whatever and yet still be listening to a book or learning something for that matter so head on over to audibletrial.com forward slash arr and that link is on our uh, on our website as well if you go to our website and look down i think it's on, down on the left hand side you'll be able to see a link there click on it and it'll take you to audible go get yourself a free book courtesy of adventure rider radio was a lot of fun i really enjoyed that and uh it's great to be a part of somebody who's made such a difference for so many people and that goes for a lot of people that write adventure motorcycle books or adventure books in general you know it, it's amazing to live vicariously through these people and i, I can't encourage you more I, I couldn't say enough about it than to get out there and buy these books and support these people and what they do it's just fantastic and and as I said before, if you haven't read Jupiter's Travels, you've got to get that book. Absolute must read. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. I know I'm going to. i got to ride today. Matter of fact, I'm going to make a point of getting out and riding today in honor of Ted Simon. As a matter of fact, why don't we all do that? Why don't you go out there and ride somewhere today and think about Ted Simon when you ride today. Maybe pop by the Facebook and tell us what you did. Pop by the Facebook. (laughs) Adventure Rider Radio is made possible by Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Oh yeah, I think I may have asked you this once before, but head on over to iTunes and give us a rating. You know, you go to your iTunes program if you have a Mac, and if you don't, I don't know, ways to do it i'm sure go on over to itunes give us a rating drop by the website we get a lot of feedback on the website a lot of feedback on facebook and we love it it's stimulating and it gives us lots of ideas so make sure you drop by like us on facebook follow us on twitter connect through social media i'm jim martin